Okay, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, episode 71, Inconvenient Truths. And this, uh, we are getting right up into the septuagenarian numbers right now. Um, <clears throat> almost as many podcasts, uh, actually the number of podcasts is as high as the age of some of my family members, uh, distant family members, actually, uh, which is impressive. I've got um, 71 podcasts, and actually, if you count the domain query ones, it's like 20 more, 19 more, so it's close to 90 podcasts now, so coming up on the big century, uh, which is impressive, if you think about it, because um, that is a lot of podcasts. Uh, no two ways about that. Most podcasts don't last, oh, I don't know, 15 episodes. Um, a few make it through to more than double digits, but uh, very few indeed make it through to triple digits. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, Toe Rogan's is up to the thousand some, but uh, that's, I mean, that's Joe Rogan. What do you expect? He's hes a legend in the industry, and rightly so. Um, I don't always agree with what he says, but, uh, you know, he's a, he's been at it a long time. I respect his longevity. I respect his skill. Um before we continue any further, uh, as always, a very, very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners on Podbean. Very warm welcome to all of my long-time subscribers on the site, didacticmind.com. If you are not a subscriber to my email list, please make sure you hit the subscribe link, because that will be in the description box, both uh, on Podbean and on my site, and you will be able to register to receive uh, every update, every upload, uh, every post. Uh, <clears throat> basically, you'll always be informed of anything that goes on with the site. And also, we're creeping up on 50 subscriptions, uh, including some rather interesting names. I won't tell you who's subscribed to my email list, but uh, there are a couple of uh, interesting characters um, who uh, evidently like what I write, which is really, really cool. So. Be that as it may, um, the title of today's or tonight's podcast is Inconvenient Truths, and there's a reason for that. Uh, tonight is all about those things which we want to say, and we can't, for whatever reason. And we can't say them because they offend people, and frankly, I'm sick and tired of tiptoeing around some of these issues. I think it's high time that we point out that certain truths are offensive. That is the nature of truth. And, and a, a truth is only true if it annoys someone. Lies are comforting and easy. Truths are painful and harsh. And the point of truth is that when you hear something that is true, you immediately orient yourself toward it or you reject it. Either way, you make a choice. With a lie, you can choose to live with the lie and build lie on top of lie, and eventually the entire edifice will become unsupportable and it will collapse. And the ruination of the person or the organization or indeed the kingdom involved in perpetuating those lies will be great indeed. But with a truth, the beauty of the truth is... That if you orient yourself toward the truth, and you try very hard to stick to what is true, and you try to build your life around and upon what is true, then you really never have to worry. You never have to worry about comforting delusions being pierced. You never have to worry about, you know, 
putting a foot wrong because you're simply living your life according to what is true. Of course, speaking truths these days is expensive and costly and dangerous. And that is why if you are going to go about speaking truths, then you need to take steps to protect yourself. Um, that is why I do these things under a pseudonym. Uh, that is why I always make sure I try to cover some of my tracks as much as possible. And that is why I use a VPN. Now, if you're, if you don't know what a VPN is, you'd better go look it up because it's rapidly becoming an essential item. Uh, my good buddy Lost Readout, well, actually, I owe him an email, don't I? Um, he's, he's an old friend of mine. Um, he lives and works in, um, well, in one of the heathen rebel colonies, of course. Um, <clears throat> but he wrote up a post inspired by one of my posts on big tech in which he pointed out how dangerous it is to be associated with Google in any way. And indeed, it is very dangerous. Uh, if you are on Google, and I am, unfortunately, for various reasons, uh, you will be exposed. Google can track you and can see what you're doing and can um, find you and will indeed scour and scan your documents and your emails uh, for anything even remotely dangerous. Um, if you have email addresses connected to your, you know, even your pseudonyms, they can track that. They can figure out linkages between things. This is this is dangerous and you need to get off of Google. And I need to follow my own advice, by the way. I need to go about doing a lot of this stuff, which I'm going to do over time. Um, I recommend using ProtonMail for truly secure communications. And if you want to disengage from much of the tracking and craziness of the internet, you need to start using uh, alternative tech or tech solutions. Get yourself a copy of Brave Browser, make sure it's installed on your PC. If you can get away from Microsoft, start using Linux. I mean, I use Linux Mint for everything and it works and it's great and it's really powerful. Uh, it does everything I need it to do. Um, it is in many ways much better than Windows. If I have to use Windows, I'll boot up a virtual machine for Windows 10 and run, you know, Word and uh, Excel and a few other applications on that if I must. I don't like doing it because it's a memory hog um, and VirtualBox, you know, even allocating four gigabytes to it with VirtualBox and Chromium on the same system, uh, it tends to cause some problems. But if you want to get away from Google, these are the steps you need to take. If you want to get away from Facebook, delete your Facebook account or get off, just stop using Facebook entirely. Get your business off of this stuff. Start using alternative tech platforms. Start using Brave Browser. Start using, if you must stick to Chrome uh, of any kind, use open source Chromium, which is a much more effective uh, alternative. Start using Linux and get yourself away from Microsoft as much as possible. Uh, Amazon, you know, if you want free delivery and free shipping and all the other good stuff that comes with it, then you're stuck with using Amazon, but reduce your dependence upon it. I mean, Yes, your convenience will reduce immediately, but your freedom will increase. And what's more, you might just get a chance to go out for a walk, get your fat ass off the couch and go outside, go for a walk and get away from, you know, this, this, this air of panic and gloom and doom that, that so many people have about the Kung flu. You might as well go outside, go for a walk, go for a shop, go for a drive. Go to a local store and buy something that you need rather than 
ordering it off of Amazon and waiting for the convenience of it to arrive through the US Postal Service or through uh, Express Courier. Um, and if you want to secure, uh, to surf the web securely, you should get yourself a VPN, as I said. Um, let me explain how powerful that is. Uh, here is my IP address. This is my actual IP address right now, okay? My IP address, as it registers right now, is 81.92.200.118, okay? What does that come to? Where am I located? Well, according to a site like tracemyip.org, that exact IP address puts me somewhere in London. Except I'm not in London. I'm nowhere near London. I have no intention of being anywhere near London. And if I wanted to, I could have pretended that I am in Cologne in Germany, or in Singapore, or in Bombay, or in Sydney, or in New York, if I wanted to, because I have access to a VPN. If you want to get that same capability to make sure that your steps cannot be traced back to you, uh, to the maximum extent practicable under current technology, get yourself a uh, copy of Surfshark, or get yourself a Surfshark, Surf, Surfshark subscription. It's currently on at 81% off. I'm serious. I mean, that's a staggering um, discount. And if you were to go to uh, Surfshark through the link that I have provided, you will get two years of one of the best VPNs around, um, You know, one of the most easy to access, most user-friendly, and by far the best value for money VPNs around. And you will get that for, you know, basically 81% off. That's what, uh, looking at the cost, it's like $2.41, actually less than that. Um, yeah, it's about $2.30 a month. Um, well, what is it actually? I'm looking at a different currency. Yeah, $2.49 a month, $2.49, so $2.50 a month for 24 months. 81% off. You're saving 60 bucks over the regular price. Get yourself a VPN and trust me, you will need it because you'll get unlimited devices, unlimited access, um, something like, I think, 3,000 servers worldwide, something like that. Um, and you will be able to surf Netflix videos if you're subscribed to Netflix or uh, go to the Devil Mouse's streaming service, uh, Devil Mouse Plus. Or if you'd rather just uh, stick a finger stick a finger in their eyes, uh, the middle finger, you can go to you can sail the high seas, shall we say, and go to Pirate Bay and download whatever you want. And you can do that through a you know a torrent client on Linux. It's very easy. You have transmission available for you as part of the base installation. You can download as many movies and uh, TV shows and, and podcasts and uh, albums as you want. And the uh, greedy corporate overlords who think that they rule your life won't get a single cent from you. Well, sounds like a pretty good deal to me, you know, for basically the cup less than the price of a cup of really bad Starbucks coffee every month. You can stick a finger in the eye of big tech. Sounds like a pretty easy choice to me. So all the links will be in the description boxes uh, in here and um, here on Podbean and over on um, on my site. Make sure you take advantage of this because you will get um, a tremendous deal. Now, as to the inconvenient truths that I wanted to talk about, well, 
An Inconvenient Truth, as you know, is the title of uh, Al Gore's uh, incredibly inaccurate and uh, incredibly uh, foolish film from well, almost 20 years ago now, in which he made a number of uh, spectacularly misleading claims about the Earth's temperature and uh, about man-made global warming. Uh, which we now know of as climate change, which is, I mean, it was one of the stupidest names you can imagine because the climate is always changing. But it's, it's become part of the lexicon. It's become useful as a term because these truths are indeed inconvenient. They are uncomfortable. They don't make you feel good to say them, but they're still true. So in today's podcast, I want to go through some of the truths that we dare not speak in public because they might expose us to ridicule, to the outrage mob, to people who hate us, and to people who want to destroy us. And let's start with one of the most inconvenient truths of them all, which is that there are, in fact, irreducible differences between different races. Now, put that way, doesn't sound too terrible, but if you were to say that out loud in polite society or uh, among the blue checkmark crowd on Twitter or on Facebook or on any of the social media platforms, they would immediately descend upon you like the thousand nations of the Persian Empire, as I said in my previous domain query about rhetoric. Go look it up. It's, uh, it's not a bad episode. Um, now, what are these differences? Well, the first and most prevalent among them is IQ. And this is something that has been proven time and time and time and time and time again. If you read um, Charles F. Murray and Richard Hernstein's book, The Bell Curve, this is an incredibly polarizing book because the right views this as, well, depending on who you talk to in the right, if you're talking about the nationalist right, we look at it as, well, this is just a bunch of facts and it's, you know, we should point ourselves towards these facts and we can't get away from them. There's no way to work around them. So we might as well accept them and live with them. If you talk to the conservatives who are all about civic nationalism and integration and diversity as our strength and all this other nonsense, they will be horrified by it. They will try to pretend it doesn't exist, even though they can't refute its conclusions. And because even conservatives do tend to think more with their left brain than their right, meaning that they are more analytical than they are emotional, not completely, but more so. This is a, I, I realize this is a broad generalization. I don't pretend otherwise. But as a general rule, those of a conservative bent, even conservatives, do think more logically than rhetorically or emotionally. Again, vastly generalizing. They are forced to the conclusion that what the book says is basically true. And in fact, it is. IQ is a fundamental difference or fundamental differentiating factor between different races. And you can't get away from this you will see different IQ levels within different uh, groups within the same country. So if you look at white IQs 
in most Western countries, for instance. If you look at white, uh, white IQ, white European IQ in the US or in the UK or in Russia or anywhere else, white European IQ tends to range somewhere between 95 and 105, thereabouts, uh, average IQ. Uh, in the US, the last time I checked, the average white IQ, male and female, is about 103. Uh, in Russia, I think the average national IQ is something like 95, 96. Uh, again, I haven't checked in a long time. The statistics are probably out of date. You can go look them up for yourself. But you'll see it's, it's sort of more or less in that range. Um, some nations fall out of it uh, on either side. But as a general rule, 95 to 105 is about what we're talking about. And that, again, it depends on which version of the IQ test you're using. There's uh, the Stanford Binet IQ test, and there's another one um, starts with a W, I think. Uh, I forget what it's called. Um, what is it, in fact? I'm going to go look it up. Uh, Stanford Binet uh, standard, IQ, standard IQ tests. And there's... Um, there are there are a couple of different versions of this, but you can you know you can go see you can actually take a lot of these tests online by yourself, um, and the question then becomes well okay what does that mean I mean you know there's one that ranges from up to I think 107 from like up to 170 is the maximum and there's another that ranges up to about 200 is the maximum well either way depending on how you measure IQ. Um, standard deviation, meaning the spread of away from the center, uh, is between 14 and 16. Again, I'm, I'm deliberately kind of being very vague, but you can look up the precise statistics if you want. Um, if you want to measure your own IQ, that's easily enough, that's easy enough. Um, but you can, you can figure out, roughly speaking, where you sit on the IQ scale. Uh, you probably shouldn't take the free IQ tests. I mean, they're just a, a very rough proxy. They're not, they're not rigorous. Um, and the modern sort of um, standardized tests, the, the SATs, the GREs, the GMATs, they're not good proxies anymore because they, they no longer really test for cognitive ability. But if you take these tests, um, you will quickly find or if you examine the results in these tests, you will quickly find that different racial groups fall well outside of the norms established for white Europeans. Uh, black Americans have an average IQ of 85, and that's been repeatedly established for decades. You can't get away from that. Trillions of dollars in welfare spending has gone out to African American communities, or I should say black communities, in the USA over the last 60 years hasn't made one damn bit of difference. Black American IQ still sits at about 85. That's positively amazing compared to Sub-Saharan African IQ, which is at an average of about 70 and has stayed that way uh, pretty much since the entire time that IQ testing um, has been around. So you can't get away from that either. It's not possible. Um, if you look around the world at, let's say, Han Chinese, uh, the average IQ in Singapore, which is about 70% ethnically Chinese, and it's, I mean, 
they're not Han Chinese exactly. Um, they're actually uh, straight Chinese and Hokkien uh, in in large measure, which is to say they're not what you would consider Chinese Chinese necessarily. Although Singaporeans might be very offended by that, but I'm saying that uh, Han Chinese have an average IQ of again somewhere between 105 and 110. It's somewhere in that range. Um, Singaporean Chinese tend to, as far as I know, Singapore has the highest national average IQ in the world. Uh, it's somewhere in the range of, you know, in fact, let's pull up the IQ tests. Oh yeah, as far as uh, the IQ test standards that I talked about, um, you have uh, quite a few different ones, but um, waiting for those to come up. Um, you have Woodcock, Johnson, Raven, Cattle, uh, Reynolds, Thurston, and uh, then you have, uh, as usual, the Stanford Binet um, typical test. So there are, I mean, they're, they're all different. They all have certain differences embedded, but um, uh, average IQ by country. And if you go look that up, you'll quickly realize that there are vast disparities between different countries. And that's not surprising. If you were to go look up uh, brain stats and their uh, average IQ by country register, you'll quickly realize exactly what the problem is. Uh, there are many countries where the average national IQ is what, by Western standards, would be considered frankly, retarded. Yeah, Singapore. Uh, Singapore and Hong Kong are tied at number one for average national IQ of 108. South Korea is next at 106. Um, the US is... Actually, it's uh, outside of the top 10, interestingly, uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah. The UK has an average national IQ of 100. If you look at um, Russia, what is Russia's? 97. Ukraine, 97. And you can see that if you look up these statistics, they're all kind of grouped together. And if you look at um, the US and Canada, they're sort of in the 95 to 100 range, so is Russia. But then you look at the African countries, and a number of African countries actually have a range below 65. How does that work? I mean, if you look at, let's say, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at Cameroon, 64, Gabon, 64, Mozambique, 64. Uh, if you look at a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, Botswana, 70, Burundi, 69, Chad, 68, Somalia, 68. Again, depending on which scale you use, this is either at or below re retardation. Now, I'm not saying that Africans are retarded because that's not the, you know, that's, that's not the conclusion that you can necessarily draw. I'm saying that the average sub-Saharan African IQ is what it is, and you can't change that. There are ways that you can affect average national IQ. One is education, another is nutrition. Actually, that has a huge impact on average national IQ. Good, good nutrition makes a massive difference. That's no doubt or question about that. Malnutrition severely diminishes cognitive capacity. Um, but this leads us to another very inconvenient truth, which is that you cannot have 
multiple ethnicities and multiple nationalities living in the same sort of melting pot culture. It doesn't work for the very same reason that I just mentioned. These differences are, by definition, irreducible. You can't get rid of them. Doesn't happen. Consider, if you look up India, right? Average national IQ of 82. The United Kingdom has a huge proportion or huge number of uh, South Asian migrants. And the people who come to the UK from South Asia tend to do very well. They're among the highest income groups, and they're certainly among the highest income groups in the US. But that those people who succeed are among the cognitive elite who migrate over from India and Pakistan to the West. Those are the people who do really, really well. And they have they skew their own average statistics. If you look at like average household income of Indian or Pakistani doctors, or families, I should say, in the US. I mean, average income, average household income of $100,000 a year or more, right? They're, they're considered, they're like the, 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 the highest earning ethnic group in the USA, followed, I think, very closely by Jews. And that's it, right? That, that's, that's all you can draw from that. But here's the thing. That number is disproportionately skewed by the unusual number of Indian billionaires and millionaires and tech, um, uh, entrepreneurs and tech workers who, by definition, go into highly paid fields and they bring more of their own kind into those fields. And when they bring more of their own kind into those fields, the very same systems that allow some of them to succeed and others not to, you know, keep others down in their home country come with them. You don't believe me? There's a, a lawsuit going on right now. Uh, this uh, popped up on, um, uh, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day's blog, um, where it looks like Cisco Systems is currently embroiled in a lawsuit uh, with California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing uh, in San Jose. And basically what happened was uh, a Dalit, uh, an untouchable caste employee, and if you don't understand what I mean by Dalits, then uh, there are some podcasts that I have up on the subject which may prove useful. Uh, there's one, I think, called the Indian Blue Pill Beta, and, the, and there's another one called the Jackass and the, and the Cow. Um, these are domain query podcasts where I was answering people's questions. Go look them up on Podbean or on my site, and you'll find them. And I answered this, this issue of caste. Oh, and I also um, went into the question of whether or not it's genetic, which, as far as I can tell, it is. Caste discrimination in India, as far as I can tell, is genetic. So, what I tried to explain in those podcasts was how the caste system worked and how it has frozen Indian genetics, archaeogenetics, in place for about 1,500 years, to the point where it seems like racial discrimination in India happens almost at an unconscious level, right? So what this, this Cisco Systems employee alleges is that he, or I think it's a he, uh, unnamed employee, okay, so yeah, he, he is, um, he alleges that his managers at Cisco uh, discriminated against him because he was a very dark skin and, you know, he's a Dalit, 
and considered untouchable. And these higher caste employees didn't want to hire him into projects and didn't want anything to do with him. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't. I mean, I've seen this happen in action um, myself, so I'm not surprised. Uh, this is all the reality of diversity in societies. And this is uh, something that has horrified the diversitopians among us. For decades, most, uh, most of the diversity uberales crowd tries to deny this. That tries to deny that age-old prejudices come over with people and that it takes generations to break them down and get rid of them. And in some cases, you can't get rid of them. I mean, with Indians, you can't get rid of this. It's 1,500 years worth of frozen archaeogenetics that makes this happen at an unconscious level. It's an unconscious bias. You cannot get rid of it. You can break it down somewhat with education and training. Um, in cer certain cases... You know, with uh, people who basically didn't even grow up in India, they just happened to be born of Indian parents. It doesn't occur to them because their entire mindset is that of a Western um, person. You that you know that that does work uh, in the same way that if you have a white child born among Han Chinese, for instance, and lives his entire life among Han Chinese, he's always instinctively going to trust Chinese people. Uh, there was a famous case of a, a black girl, basically, I think it was a black African father and a Chinese mother, and they fell in love and had a kid, and, you know, the, the kid grew up in China, and all of her Chinese friends were like, you know, you're, you're, you're black, you're African, you're not Chinese, and she's like, no, I'm Chinese, I speak perfect Mandarin, and she does, she speaks absolutely perfect Mandarin, but because of her skin color and appearance, she's considered black, so she, as a as a child growing up, always instinctively trusted Chinese people because that's what she knew. So you can get rid of some of these prejudices that way, but you can't get rid of them on a mass scale. It's not going to happen. You can't, you can't take 1.4 billion Indians and disperse them across the globe. That's idiotic. It's ridiculous. It's not going to happen, right? So what are you left with? You're left with a culture that despises and denigrates the weakest and poorest members of its society. And that's just how things are done there. If you go to India, you're going to find that out in a big hurry. Now, why would you want to import that culture to the United States or to the West in general? Why, why does that make sense? Given, again, an inconvenient truth that whites are actually the least racist people around. And I'm not saying this as, as somebody who um, wants to stir up divisions or anything. I'm saying this as somebody who's seen it myself. White people are the least racist anywhere. The white Europeans, they bend over backwards to incorporate diversity and inclusion and all of that, but they keep getting barracked with this constant barrage of nonsense about how racist they are and how they have a, a history of colonial oppression and slavery and all of this other crap sitting on their heads. It's all garbage. Because the one thing you can be sure of is that as bad as white, as badly as white people have behaved towards other people, and it's true they have, there's no doubt about it, those people making the accusations have always behaved worse, every time. If you look at black allegations of whites enslaving blacks, yeah, that happened. No one's arguing it. No one's saying it didn't happen. That's absolutely true. Guess who did most of the enslaving? Other blacks. Guess who did most of the buying and selling of slaves? Arabs. Arab Muslims. Guess 
who enslaved large populations of white people in Europe to the tune of at least a million slaves taken from Christendom, Arab Muslims. Guess where there was a thriving slave trade in white European women? Turkey. Among the Ottomans. The Ottomans prized particularly uh, Christian European girls from Albania and from Slavic countries. That's a fact. That's an inconvenient truth. It's a reality. Nobody wants to acknowledge it, but it's the truth. The Arab Muslims of that era, of, you know, for, for about an 800-year period, were responsible for tens of millions of African slaves taken from their homes and forced into servitude. That's the truth. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's true. So when black people blame whites and when Asians blame whites and when, you know, ethnic Europeans of various descents blame whites for everything that's gone wrong with their cultures, they really should turn inwards and look into their own cultures. Same with Indians, same with Pakistanis, same with Africans, same with Latin Americans. They should look inwards at their own cultures and ask, were we really any better? And the answer almost every single time is no. Because, again, inconvenient truth, Christianity has been a tremendous civilizing influence on the world. Let's take Latin America. Let's take Central and South America in particular. Well, I mean, that's all of Latin America. So let's take just Latin, Central America, right? The Aztecs. Um, what were the Aztecs doing before the Spaniards came over? And no one's excusing the conduct of the Spaniards. I mean, what the... What the conquistadors did was horrific and brutal. And no one argues that uh, Hernando Cortes and his um, and, and Pizarro and all the other uh, Spanish and Portuguese uh, conquistadors who came over were good people because they weren't. They really weren't. Cortes was a, an absolute grade A asshole. But when he and his Europeans came over, what did they find? Well, they found a culture that venerated human sacrifice. This is not something that, you know, La Raza types deny. I mean, well, they, they deny it to the world, you know, when they're facing the press. But among themselves, they don't deny it. They know full well that the Aztecs and the Olmecs and the Toltecs and all the rest of the Mesoamerican cultures gloried in human sacrifice. The Aztecs had a number of interesting rituals. All of them based around the idea of offering blood sacrifices to their sun god, which they believed was being chased around every single day by a terrible apocalyptic demon in the sky that would catch up to the sun if enough blood was not sacrificed and devour the sun and cast the world into darkness. And that you know, there was a recurring cycle of terrible events that were, I mean, it's all superstitious, superstitious religious nonsense. But that's what they believed. And based on those beliefs, they would go out, capture lesser tribes, slaughter them. Uh, they had a particular ritual where basically they would hold a screaming victim down on a, on a, on a, on a slab. Uh, a priest would take an obsidian knife, because they didn't have steel working, obviously. They were too primitive for that. They'd take a, a, a knife made out of a particular type of volcanic glass called obsidian, cut to uh, an extraordinarily sharp edge. I mean, obsidian is, I mean, I, I know I'm going on a wool gathering trip here, but 
obsidian is a, a remarkable um, substance. If you chip it and it, it breaks away, the flakes at a microscopic level are sharper at that level than steel. So that's why um, there have been experiments done with uh, using obsidian scalpels rather than regular steel scalpels. So you take this obsidian knife, plunge it into the victim's ribs, break the ribs, and um, essentially uh, take the, the heart, rip the heart out from the chest and you know, hold it up to the sky, still beating while it sprays blood um, out over the steps of the temple. Uh, if you've ever watched Apocalypto by Mel Gibson, that's exactly what it depicts. I mean, it depicts these horrific rituals, but those actually happen. That's, that's real. That, that well, was real. And that's what happened before the Spaniards got there, before the Portuguese got there, and put a stop to this nonsense. Now, they did so using horrific and barbaric methods. Yeah, no one argues that. Um, but the reality is that most of the native population died off not from guns and steel, but from germs, to use, you know, to, to, to paraphrase uh, Jared Diamond's famous uh, and apparently rather misguided thesis. Um, smallpox killed off uh, as much as 90% of the victims, the last time I saw the statistic, uh, of the conquests. So, are you seriously going to argue that that culture of human sacrifice is better than a Christian culture? Really? Seriously? Are you seriously going to argue that a culture in which a young couple would be thrown screaming alive into a fire uh, to be burned alive as a ritual sacrifice to the gods was a good idea? And that the, you know, the, the crowd would then pull the, the still smoking remains out of the fire and eat the limbs with chilies? Like, is this a good thing? Are you seriously going to argue that a culture in which blood sacrifice is conducted on a daily basis, in which, like, um, the king and queen of the, 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 the city-state would have to do, like, monthly or weekly bloodletting rituals. So there's a, one particular ritual, apparently, where the king would have to pierce his scrotum with uh, a, a very sharp knife and let the blood drip out onto the ground, and the queen would have to have her tongue pierced uh, and draw a, a, a thin rope with thorns in it through the hole. And, you know, that's considered a good thing? Like, seriously? You know, what is wrong with people who say that this is a good thing? What is so bad about replacing that with a culture that actually values every individual human life? And by the way, the conquistadors, you know what stopped them from their ravaging and pillaging of um, Latin America? You know what stopped them? There's a papal bull issued in 1538 called Sublimus Dei. Because when the conquistadors got to the New World, they looked at these people committing these acts of unspeakable savagery. And they said, these, these people cannot possibly be human. They cannot possibly have human souls. These are beasts in the shape of men, and they must be exterminated. That's what the conquistadors said. It was the Catholic Church in Rome that said, you will stop this. These people have souls. They must be converted over to the Christian faith. That is what stopped the massacres, Christianity. So, again, these are truths you don't really hear. I, I get that, but they are true.
and they are uncomfortable and you need to hear them and you need to absorb them. Here's another inconvenient truth that most people really hate to talk about and it's about violence and crime. There are subgroups of any particular country where groups, certain racial groups commit more crime than others. In America, it is blacks. Whether you like it or not, that's the truth. Blacks commit murders and armed assaults and robberies at a far higher rate than whites do. If you, blacks constantly complain about police profiling and racial profiling. Well, that's very much a chicken or egg question. Because if you're looking at a black youth and he's got his pants hanging low and he's got, you know, just, he looks scruffy, ill-mannered, unkempt, impolite, rude, and he acts, you know, he mouths off to the police. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Are the police going to say, oh, he's an upstanding citizen and let him go on his way? No, it's not going to happen. Now, if blacks were consistently well-behaved, and the statistics reflected this, and police attacked them, then you could argue that the killings or shootings of black uh, unarmed men, or armed men even, are racially motivated. But that's not what the data show. That's, the data does not show this at all. The data show that, number one, blacks commit murders and crimes, armed robberies and uh, armed assaults at a rate vastly higher than their population would suggest. And number two, most of the victims of black violence and crime are other blacks. And number three, the epidemic, the pandemic actually, of black on white crime is criminally underreported. If you don't believe me, read two books by Colin Flaherty, uh, White Girl Bleed a Lot and, um, damn, I've forgotten what the other one is. Can't believe that. Uh, gotta go look it up. I can't believe I've forgotten that one. Um, white Girl Bleed a Lot. Uh, and there's another one. Uh, no, not that one. That's, uh, that's, that's quite a racist title, actually. Um, what is it called? I'm looking it up now. Colin Flaherty. Yeah, there we go. And uh, a couple of others. Um on the same subject, which are really quite quite uh, disturbing in a lot of ways. Um, and they're, they're disturbing mostly because it's shocking how, how little uh, America's media report on this stuff. It's, it's absolutely horrifying the ways in which the American media try to suppress this information. They just won't talk about it. They won't talk about the fact that black on white crime is at epidemic levels and is rising. They won't confront it because nothing can be allowed to confront the narrative that whites are racist and blacks are victims. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. It's not true. The data don't show it. Okay. The data show instead that blacks are on the receiving end of tremendous amounts of violence from other blacks and that whites are being attacked in ever greater numbers. And this is dangerous. It's you know what the fastest way is to turn a man into a screaming racist? Like, seriously, do you, do you want to know the, the, the fastest way to do that? 
It's to force him to deny that race reality exists, that there are differences between different races. The fastest way to turn a man racist is to do that, to force him to say there is no difference between races, to force him to think that Chinese and Indians and blacks and um, Native Americans and Irish and Romani and Italians and Greeks and so on, they're all the same. They're all exactly the same. No, they're not. I just told you. I mean, there are irreducible differences in IQ, intelligence. Now, what does intelligence indicate? Well, it's nothing more than an indication of potential. That's all. Um, IQ is not a sole determinant of success. It can't be. IQ is nothing more than your potential. What, I, what do I mean by this? Um, let's take um, a Bugatti, well, not a Veyron, a Chiron, actually. You take the Bugatti Chiron. The Bugatti Chiron is an unbelievable performance vehicle. It's got a top speed of 265 miles an hour. It generates 1,500 brake horsepower. Okay, The engine, W16 quad-turbo engine. Marvelous piece of engineering. The Bugatti Chiron needs all 1,500 brake horsepower to reach that top speed of 265. But actually, if you're just driving it to pose, it really doesn't need more than about 150, 180 of those horsepowers to drive around at street speeds. Okay? The same is true of IQ. If you have an IQ of 150, that means you have the potential to understand and absorb information at rates that make even average people of average IQs look idiotic by comparison. And it does not scale in a straight line. It scales exponentially because, you know, that's, that's the, the nature of the, um, the curve. If you look up the, the, the normal distribution, the, um, the cumulative density function, uh, will, is, is essentially a, an S shape. So it does not, it does not scale in a straight line. Your, your cognitive capacity does not scale linearly compared to somebody who's at 100 IQ. The, if you're at 150 IQ, and a couple of my readers and listeners are 150 IQ people, that, that's how smart they are. They're smarter than me and by a huge margin. These people can take on whatever I'm saying and they can twig onto it very quickly. They can, understand very, very complex concepts very, very fast. They don't need me to sit there and explain it to them. They just intuitively understand it. People of 100 IQ will have a lot more trouble. People of 70 IQ won't be able to get it. People who have like an IQ of 70 won't be able to do basic computer programming particularly well. They won't be able to grasp some of the more advanced concepts in um, engineering, in physics, in mathematics. It can't happen. Uh, I proved this actually. I mean, I, I, I did a uh, Black Lives Matter post uh, a while back where I basically did a comparison between average black IQ and uh, average black American IQ and um, average white IQ. And what did I, what did I show? I basically showed the two bell curves side by side, you know, one with a mean of um, 85 uh, and a, dis- a standard deviation of 15 and another with a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 15. And I proved Mathematically, that the number of geniuses, meaning people of 130 or 135 IQ, whatever it is, uh, over that, that, that barrier is like, is, is fractional for, um, for blacks. And this is not, you know, it's not racist to say that. Math, maths is not racist. It's just that is what it is. 
if you look at the the numbers, um, it's inescapable. The the data tell you this. So if you look at exactly what I calculated, give me a second. Let me go look it up. Um, because I, I did do this uh, function. Yeah, if you use a simple method like that to figure out um, what proportion of a particular population would be over, over that 135 or 130, whatever it was, line, if you assume that the general population has an, uh, an average IQ of 100 and a standard deviation of 15, 2.275% of people in a general population with that characteristic, will be over that number. Among white Americans who have an average IQ of 103, it's about 3.6%. You know what it's like among black Americans? 85, stand, 85 average IQ, standard deviation of 15? 0.135%. Don't argue with me or call me names for this. It's just what the numbers show. I can't help it. This is just, it's just the truth. Don't argue with me. Argue with mathematics. Argue with uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss. That's his distribution that he came up with. Of course, he's dead and has been for centuries. Um, here's another very inconvenient truth. If you put people of different races and different ethnicities in close proximity, Number one, they won't trust each other. Social trust and cohesion will break down very rapidly. And number two, they won't uh, mix. They will not mingle together at all. Not going to happen. The first finding comes from Robert Putnam's work, Bowling Alone, and um, the study that he did, uh, you know, more than more than ten years ago, more than fifteen years ago now. Robert Putnam was and is a very liberal Harvard sociology professor. And he put together this study um, investigating social trust in communities that were more diverse versus communities that were homogeneous. He was horrified by what he found. He was so horrified that he refused to release his results for years. He ref well, he refused to re release his data. He refused to release... Um, his data and refused to come to any conclusions about it. And then when he's pushed about it, he said, I don't, I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to touch it. It's too scary. Finally, he was pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, he, he came out and published his conclusions and his data. And he said, at the end of his paper, he basically said, um, we need more education and more uh, diversity and tolerance teaching and more diversity and inclusion metrics and and we need to push this on people we need to have an agenda to push this on people i'm paraphrasing heavily but this is more or less what he said even though his own experiments controlled for the effects of education meaning education didn't have an impact ultimately on social trust it means that social trust is something built into us and that comes back to something i've been saying for years which is that xenophobia fear of the other fear of the outsider is a survival instinct. It's not something you can really get rid of very easily. Every single culture, every single language has a word for outsider or enemy. Every single one. 
You want to know, I'm taking this from John Ringo's book, The Lost Century, and I don't pretend to speak any Native American language, but apparently, according to John Ringo, you want to know what the Hopi Indian word for enemy is, or outsider? Apache. That's what they considered fellow Native Americans. And if you, if you watch a, a movie called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, there's a very, very telling scene between a, an American Indian, a Native American tribal chief and a Union soldier in which the two of them are talking. And the Native American chief basically tells the, the soldier, the, the, the captain or colonel, whatever his name was, um, you have taken our lands. What if, you know, how dare you do this to us? You have, you have taken away everything we care about. We lived in peace here. And the, 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 the captain just looks at him and says, seriously? You, you weren't living in peace. You took this land from the Blackfoot, who took it from the Crow, who took it from the Cree, who took it from this, the, the Sioux, and so on, you know, like down the line. Don't tell me that you lived here in peace because you didn't. And that's true. They didn't. When you have different ethnic groups in close proximity with each other, conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen because you cannot get past these irreducible differences. It can't be done. So let's stop pretending that you can get past these differences. Let's simply accept that different groups are going to separate and let people be. If you have a, a workplace full of lots of different ethnic groups, watch what happens. They're not going to mix with each other. They're not. I used to work in uh, a big global bank, okay? In, in, in one of, in a, in a big financial capital, in, in two big financial capitals, actually. I've, I've worked for them, uh, in two, you know, major financial hubs. And during winter, I mean, I, you know, I'd just go out and get my, my lunch, or I would go down to the cafeteria and put together a big ass salad and, and sit in, in the cafeteria. And because it was freaking freezing outside, I wouldn't want to spend that time out there. Uh, I would sit in the cafeteria and eat. And I would sit, you know, at the, at the back of, uh, the cafeteria room because I didn't want to be bothered. And I would watch the interactions between other people. And you know what was really interesting? The Chinese always ate together. They would never eat with anyone else. The Russians would always eat together. The Indians would always eat together. The Indians and the Pakistanis would always eat together. Because they share a common language. They share a common bond. The same with the Chinese. The same with the Russians. The same with the Ukrainians. The same with the blacks. Same with the Hispanics. They would all sit together and eat together. And I would observe that the only people who actually tried to... Oh, and the, and the Jews as well. The Jews would always sit together. And what I would observe was always very interesting. It was only the white people who made any effort whatsoever to mingle. There was some, okay, I mean, that's not entirely fair. There was some among um, the Latins. So you know, sometimes you'd have like a Latino sitting with a black guy or a Latina sitting with a black girl or, you know, there's some amount of mixing there. But mostly it was white people sitting with mixed race groups. And then the other races would just separate out. Naturally, there was, and again, there was no like commandment to, to do this. It was just a natural sifting process. People would naturally self-segregate. Why is this a bad thing? Because you know, that's just, that's how humans act. That's how we behave. So why do we continue to insist and pretend that this is wrong? This is natural to human beings. This is human nature. Why do we insist that it is wrong? Why do we insist 
that if you bring in lots of Chinese people into a white-run firm, the Chinese should act like white people, and the whites should act like Chinese people. It's not going to happen. They're not going to do it. In fact, what you're going to find is that the white people will bend over backwards to make the Chinese feel welcome. The Chinese will do everything in their power to lock out the whites. That's exactly what happens every single time. The Chinese will only hire other Chinese people. I've seen it. This is, this is just the basic truth of bringing in lots of Chinese people into a company. They will only hire Chinese people. The same with the Indians. They'll only hire Indians. The same with blacks. They'll only hire other black people as a general rule. Not 100% true. There are exceptions. That's, what I found is that the, the Chinese are like almost like 90 plus percent ethnically oriented. They will only hire other Chinese. Um, Indians are about 85% ethnically oriented. They will only hire other Indians about 85% of the time. Blacks, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any hard data or any or much anecdotal evidence to, to support it. Um, but I would say it's probably around 70%. Whites, it's like 30-40% of, of the time they'll hire other white people. And you know, that's again, that's very scattered. Um, it's hard to support that. Jews, however, Jews will routinely show significant preference for other Jews. And this comes back to, very briefly, another inconvenient truth of the myth of high Jewish IQ. Ashkenazi Jews have long run around saying, we have the highest average IQ in the world, 115 IQ. This is nonsense. And our, again, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, Vox Day, peace be unto him, disproved this when Jordan uh, B. Peterson, the crazy Christ, brought it up a few years ago. As an aside, don't take advice from Jordan Peterson. The guy is freaking nuts. But our our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, unto him be peace, tore apart this argument and showed that it's absolute nonsense. There's no way it can be true. It's based on a very cherry-picked study. Uh, it's based on one study of a very particular subset of a very particular population in a very particular place. It's, it's, it's not globally true. And number two, the implication, even if it were true, is that... Uh, non-Ashkenazi Israelis are actually dumber than, you know, in IQ terms, than the Arabs who live among them, which is nonsense. That's not possible because the average Israeli Arab IQ is significantly lower than the average Israeli Jewish IQ. So that that result cannot be true. Mathematically speaking, it's not possible. So, I mean, we're running out of time. I could go on about this for hours until my throat gives out, um, until my voice box gives out, but we do have to wrap it up. All I want to tell you is that Inconvenient truths are there for a reason. They will make you feel uncomfortable. And the most inconvenient truth of them all is the one that I'm going to leave off with. God, the Father of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, created the world. He created mankind. He put us on this world to act as stewards. We rebelled against him, and we're stuck with the consequences of that rebellion. And because God so loved us and so loved our creation, our, our, our existence, he sent down his only son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to die for our sins and to rise again so that our sins could be expiated through him. That is the most inconvenient truth of all. And if that one doesn't terrify you and make you think, you're not really looking at the truth. And you need to stop. 
that's all from me for tonight. Um, it is getting rather late. Uh, I feel sorry for my uh, American friends who had to jump their clocks forward an hour. Um, sucks to be you, but, you know, what can you do? At any rate, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. Make sure you follow uh, me on Podbean and on my site. And this has been Didactic Mind, episode 71, Inconvenient Truths. And this is Didact, signing off.